Hello, hello, hello. Good morning, good night, good afternoon. Bonjour, bon matin, bon après-midi, bon foie, bon nuit. Welcome back to Diaspora Children of Indenture, where we are the children of indenture in diaspora. And these episodes have been part of the Francophonie versus indenture segment, where we look at the intersections of indenture and indenture descendants in the French-speaking world. Today, we're continuing our conversation with Karima Rahman in episode 6B. Karima grew up in Jaage, which forms part of the Jaage Nation, which is colonially known as Montréal, Quebec, or Montreal, Quebec, but now she lives in Tecrano, colonially known as Toronto. You can find Karima on Instagram at Karima, K-A-R-I-M-A-H underscore underscore K-R, and you can find her work, the Muslim in the Indo-Caribbean Collective, the MICC, at Muslim Indo-Caribbean Collective, and the Muslim Indenture Studies Center, the MISC, at Muslim Indenture Studies Center on Instagram. And look for her work. Her, she's published several stories and articles, and she's working on a film, on a documentary about being Muslim Indo-Caribbean. Check it out. Stay tuned. Turn on notifications. Look for us, the uh, Diaspora Children of Indenture, on Instagram. Turn on notifications there. Continue listening to our podcasts on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor.fm. Turn on notifications. Make sure you're the first to know about when our newest episodes are released. And let's get back into part two of our conversation with Karima. This is episode 6B of Diaspora Children of Indenture. Thanks for listening. Have you experienced othering by other racialized people who don't share your indenture, uh, your indenture history, or your indenture uh, background uh, that differs from the othering that you experienced by white individuals in diaspora? Okay, there is there is there's so much to unpack when looking at different communities we we do know we we experience so yes because of my identity i do experience racism from white people but i i do experience it from non-brown uh racialized people and other brown people as well so one thing that i did want to talk about it when i'm looking at the way that i'm othered within other brown communities um is when it comes to other brown people within what I've coined as being the South Asian Indian authenticity purity hierarchy theory and what I use as what terms I've coined as mainland South Asian Indian supremacy, mainland South Asian Indian privilege, mainland South Asian Indian gaze and mainland South Asian Indian fragility, which are terms I coined that exist within this space. Although I may share a connection with mainland South Asian Indians in South Asian Indian spaces, I'm constantly told I am not quote-unquote South Asian or Indian enough where mainland South Asians assume a position as gatekeepers who basically dictate who could claim South Asian-ness and Indian-ness and who have the most power privilege to claim South Asian-ness and Indian-ness. So I think that's an important conversation to be had when we look at these South Asian Indian spaces and when I use the term mainland South Asian Indian I'm talking about those who um, migrated from what is known today as South the South Asian region after partition, so after 1947, and their descendants. So 
when I'm looking at South Asian Indian spaces, it's overwhelmingly represented and equated as being mainland South Asian Indian. So basically, that's the default. They're deemed the most authentic. South Asian Indians, um, that leaves Indo-Caribbeans and the indentured diaspora as being seen as impure, polluted, and bastardized. And that's why I, I think it's really important to have that be impacted in what I coined as the mainland South Asian Indian supremacy and mainland uh, South Asian Indian privilege. Because as someone who is a part of the indentured diaspora, including being Indo-Caribbean, I have experienced marginalization in South Asian Indian spaces based on the fact that my ancestors were displaced since 1838 um, and after for multiple generations from South Asia, India before partition. Since I'm not fluent or speak fluently in any South Asian Indian language, since my parents were born in Trinidad and Guyana, not in South Asia, India, because my ancestors who were indentured laborers were externally viewed as being lower socioeconomic status and cast in many NRIs who moved more recently um, in comparison to them. And when saying this, I acknowledge that I have a lot of power and privilege in not experiencing casteism in India or being a part of the recent diaspora. These are ways that Indo-Caribbeans are marginalized that are so problematic, especially since there would be no... For for example, there would be no South Asian Heritage Month in Ontario, Canada without the Indo-Caribbean community, who can be attributed to its existence by advocating using grassroots mobilization and lobbying for an inclusive celebration of South Asian culture in the South Asian Heritage Act 2001, yet Indo-Caribbeans were visibilized in South Asian Heritage Month events. And part of this problematic marginalization or silencing or invisibilization of Indo-Caribbeans in Indian, South Asian, indentured diasporic spaces is due to the retention of a lower degree of South Asian Indian languages. For example, Bojpuri, Awadi, Urdu, Tamil, under colonization than other indentured diasporas and then mainland South Asian Indians. This is the, with the exception of Suriname where Saranami is spoken. But this leaves me as a Muslim Indo-Caribbean as regularly marginalized, silenced and invisibilized in these spaces since mainland South Asian Indians, especially Hindus, are deemed more authentic, pure South Asians or Indians, where they have more power, privilege, and claiming Indianness or South Asianness. And in that same breath of saying Indo-Caribbeans cannot claim this, mainland South Asians um, and Indians continue to culturally appropriate Indo-Caribbean culture. They listen to the music, speak with the accent, eat our food, and don't realize how problematic it is and the power privilege they hold in South Asian and Indian spaces. And then when it comes to other brown people um, within the what I coined as the Indian indentured Indo-Caribbean authenticity purity hierarchy theory, we also have terms that we need to unpack that exist that, that need to that I've coined as Hindu Indian indentured diasporic Indo-Caribbean privilege, including Hindu mainland Indian privilege, Hindu indentured diasporic privilege, Hindu Indo-Caribbean privilege. We have Hindu Indian indentured diasporic Indo-Caribbean supremacy, which includes Hindu mainland Indian supremacy, Hindu indentured diasporic supremacy, and Hindu Indo-Caribbean supremacy. We have Hindu Indian indentured diasporic Indo-Caribbean gaze, which includes the Hindu mainland Indian gaze, the Hindu indentured diasporic gaze, the Hindu Indo-Caribbean gaze, and Hindu Indian indentured diasporic Indo-Caribbean fragility, which includes Hindu mainland Indian fragility, Hindu indentured diasporic fragility, and Hindu Indo-Caribbean fragility which are terms that needed to be coined and that I, that I coined and that do exist. And although I may share a connection with those parts of the Indian diaspora, the indentured diaspora and other Indo-Caribbeans, in Indian indentured diaspora and Indo-Caribbean spaces, I'm constantly told that I'm not Indian or indentured diasporic or Indo-Caribbean enough, where 
Hindu mainland Indians, Hindu indentured diaspora, and Hindu Indo-Caribbeans assume a position as gatekeepers who dictate who can claim Indianness, indentured diasporicness, Indo-Caribbeanness, and whom have more power privilege to claim Indianness, indentured diasporicness, and Indo-Caribbeanness. So my experience expressing my Muslim identity in Indian indentured diasporic and Indo-Caribbean spaces has been one of marginalization, silencing, and being made invisible. So Indo-Caribbean indentured diasporic and Indian spaces are overwhelmingly represented or equated as Hindu as the default, where Hindus of especially upper caste, Brahmin, North Indian, Indo-Aryan language speaking backgrounds are deemed quote-unquote authentic Indo-Caribbeans indentured diaspora and Indians, leaving Muslims deemed as quote-unquote impure or polluted or bastardized. So this leaves my voice um, and my identity as a Muslim Indo-Caribbean as regularly marginalized, silenced, and visibilized in the spaces representing all these identities like Muslim, Indo-Caribbean, indentured diasporic, Indian spaces, where again, Hindus are deemed the most authentic pure representations in their respective spaces where they can claim Indo-Caribbeanness, indenturedness, and Indianness more easily. So a part of that experience of being Muslim Indo-Caribbean is I not only carried the intergenerational trauma and violence that stems from indentureship, but I also experienced oppression and carried the trauma of anti-Muslim racism in Indo-Caribbean indentured diaspora, Caribbean, West Indian, Indian, and South Asian spaces back home and in Canada. So my lived experiences as a Muslim Indo-Caribbean with anti-Muslim racism is rarely acknowledged, much less addressed in all these spaces. And this includes a wide range of overt acts to microaggressions based on my position in these systems of oppression but for example I experienced anti-Muslim racism stemming from colonialism and white supremacy that was heightened post 9-11 that resulted in the Quebec mosque massacre in Canada the violent murder of the Muslim Indo-Guyanese Canadian Mohammed Aslam Zafis outside a mosque in Toronto by white supremacists and along with this as a Muslim Indo-Caribbean I endure anti-Muslim racism stemming from Hindu supremacy, Brahmin supremacy, as well as Hindutva ideology or saffron politics, um, read in Nazi fascism, with the goal of creating a Hindu state or Hindu Rashtra promoted by the Sangh Parivar, which includes, but is not limited to, the BJP, BHP, RSS, HSS. And in Indo-Caribbean indentured diasporic Indian and South Asian spaces, this is the context I coined the terms Hindu Indo-Caribbean privilege, sorry, supremacy, Hindu indentured diasporic supremacy, and Hindu Indo-Caribbean privilege or Hindu indentured diasporic privilege. Because it's important to note the distinction between Hindutva and, and Hinduism also, because Hinduism is a beautiful religion of peace, as all religions are, but Hindutva, on the other hand, manipulates history and memory, culture, scripture, Indian and Hindu, as all extremist fundamentalist versions of any religion does. So within the context of these systems of oppression in India, where Indian authenticity, purity becomes the equation of Indian Indianness equal to Hindu Hinduism, it's created where religion is a defining factor of Indianness, where Hindus, especially upper caste Brahmin North Indians who spoke Indo-Aryan languages, are considered the most authentic Indians and representations of Indianness. So this system of oppression are now re reproduced within the Indian diaspora, including indentured diasporic and Indi Indian diaspora. So Muslims like myself are deemed the least authentic pure. Uh, Indians, Indo-Caribbeans, and indentured diaspora. So Muslims aren't able to attain, aren't able to claim Indian spaces or Indianness, and are externally labeled as most inauthentic, impure, fake, foreign, inferior, polluted, diluted Indians compared to Hindus. 
So it's important to note that Dalits, Sejil tribes, Adivasis, indigenous communities present within across all these regions are the most impressed in all these spaces. And as a Muslim, I experience anti-Muslim racism in Indo-Caribbean, indentured diasporic and Indian spaces where my Muslim Muslimness is problematically vilified and externally labeled or policed due to equating Muslims as being inauthentic and pure polluted foreign alien and a dangerous security threat or terrorist intolerant in comparison to the tolerable Hindu backwards or practicing a bastardized version of Indian culture. So as a Muslim, I'm labeled as foreign or alien by saying that Muslims cannot claim India as Punya Bhumi or sacred territory or their Pitra Bhumi, the land of their ancestors. Since India is a Hindu state, Hindu Rashtra, and the homeland of Hindus, where Muslim loyalty must be questioned to India, as well as the Indian, as well as the diaspora in Indian spaces, including indentured and Indo-Caribbean spaces. So Muslims are problematically vilified and policed in Indian spaces due to tropes of being viewed as dangerous security threats whose loyalty must be questioned and as backwards and barbaric. And this Hindu-centric understanding of what it means to be Indian is equated with being Hindu Hinduism as influenced the Indian diaspora, the indentured, the Indo-Caribbean diasporas, and deeply affects the ways Muslims are perceived in the Caribbean internationally. And this leaves Muslims as never seen as Indian, where they can never claim Indianness, or where Indianness is problematically understood as only being accessed through Hindu Hinduism or Hinduness. So this problematically leaves Indian and Hindu being used interchangeably with each other, and Muslims as oppressed, marginalized, silenced, invisibilized, and Indian and Indian diasporic spaces. Now, other brown and racialized people also other me for being both Trinidadian and Guyanese, where I am simultaneously neither and not Trini enough or Guyanese enough to claim Trininess and Guyaneseness. And other brown and racialized people, other across the indentured diaspora, since as a Trini Guyanese person, I have a lower degree of South Asian Indian language retention. And I'm looked down upon by other indentured diasporas who have a higher language retention, like those from Suriname, Fiji, Mauritius, South Africa, etc. Then in Muslim spaces, I'm overwhelmingly, are overwhelmingly represented as being Middle Eastern or predominantly Arab as a default, since Arabs are viewed as more quote-unquote authentic Muslims due to Arab supremacy, where many Muslims experience Arabization and Arab supremacy and Arab privilege. So these are the different ways that if we really unpack this so many different ways in, in brown spaces or racialized spaces, you still have different systems of hierarchies of who's authentic, who can claim what, how these identities are navigated, who acts as gatekeepers. So it's really important to kind of unpack all of this because there's so much complexity and nuance there. And a lot of what I just said in my comments is actually from... Um, an article that I published with the Brown Gal Diaries, and it's called Muslim Indo-Caribbean Mar Marginalization in Indo-Caribbean Indentured Diasporic Caribbean West Indian Indian South Asian and Muslim Spaces. And again, it's published by the Brown Gal Diary on um, on their posts that they have online and articles. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. There's so much to reflect on there, and like th there's there the reality of of othering that is experienced or that occurs is is there there's so many different facets to look at there and i appreciate you reflecting on uh the the diversity i guess of of how the othering occurs mm -hmm. and the nuances of that thank you no problem the another question i have for you is about the idea of 
creolization and creole i guess generally but for those i mean creole uh or the idea of creolization comes from the the um the 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 mixing of different cultures together in diaspora i'm sorry well yes in diaspora but before uh diaspora but in in really in that's not what i meant to say but it does apply in a degree but what i meant to say was it through colonization with bringing people together through slavery through a indenture and uh the the birth and the creation of different cultures through that uh, as creolization and yes there, there's a diaspora uh component to that there and i suppose there are multiple layers of diaspora that come with the multiple layers of migration that we talk about when that when it comes to our own specific identities but um and then of course the idea of creole uh reflecting uh specific groups like in some cases the word creole was meant to um specifically uh mean the europeans who were born in colonies abroad uh well in other cases like in suriname i believe creole refers specifically to uh a group of afro uh surinamese um but anyway my question was do you relate to the thought of creolization being part of your identity or part of your culture so i'd say that due to the understanding of creolization as being this form of mixing it's very important to acknowledge that that is a part of identity and culture and Indo-Caribbeanness is definitely influenced and rooted in indigenous, African, Asian, South Asian traditions and culture, which then you can, many do refer to as being that mix and that creolization. So that's the foundation of the Caribbean and looking at Caribbeanness and Caribbean identity and Caribbean history. So I think that that is an important um, term to unpack and we need to continue unpacking it and what that means in different spaces and across different contexts and time but it is definitely that that mixing well i guess a lot of people don't foresee or consider brown people or um uh speaking french in any capacity and would you be willing to talk about some of the i guess uh um the uh what is the word so would you be willing to talk about some of the um the responses that you've gotten when people come to realize that you speak french as a non-white person uh mm. or also as as a uh as a non-black person and I, I guess there's an assumption that a fair amount of black people also speak french through their own mm-hmm. colonial uh, um history so the thing is, I, I always get shocked or responses when I speak in French as a brown person, specifically in Toronto, not not in Montreal because it's more default. It's um, there, yeah. It's it's not as shocking. In fact, they they would start yelling at you if you don't speak in French. So it's it's quite a different context. Um, but when I'm in areas that aren't predominantly French speaking, there's always shock. There's always, well, how did you learn that? Like, where did what happened that you're able to speak French? There's always such confusion about, well, why is there an interaction or between brown communities in the French language? What's going on there? That that history isn't understood or the fact that so many people from Quebec do uh, migrate to different parts of Canada. And a lot of them are brown and do know how to speak French. Uh, through having bilingual jobs in um in Toronto, I ended up meeting a lot of other brown people who have those same types of reactions where people are constantly shocked when they speak French. 
anytime I hear that someone is from Mauritius, it's no shock. I'll be like, okay, you can speak French as well. That there's that level of understanding. Um, but for others who don't know about that history, it, there's always that. But another layer um, to it, which is kind of confusing, is the fact that others who speak French assume I don't, and sometimes they speak about me without knowing I understand what they're saying. So there's that part of it. Um, and then there's also, I always hear Parisian French people oh, making God. fun of the Quebecois accent. Yeah. So that I have when I speak French. So then it's like, it's seen as being lesser than due to this superiority complex of, of the Parisian French as being this flowery, beautiful French. And even in the hiring process, I know that there is um, a le- there's a tendency to lean towards the Parisian French rather than the Quebecois French. So that's, an interesting nuance in itself uh, when talking about even the shock of being able to speak French. There's also, well, which form of French is, like, what is the hierarchy within the accents uh, in the French language also? There, yeah, there are so many levels mm-hmm. and nuances there. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I, that, that means, th- this is, is this part two of the episode? We need a, a separate episode just for that? Just for oh, packing the levels of, of, uh, of French? Uh, th- that's season three of the podcast? I love that there's going to be season three. I'm here for it. Oh my gosh, I don't know if I'll get that far. <laughs> joke, but we shall see. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, no, that, 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 is, that is so true. And that, that's something that resonates with me. Um, Though, of course, I, I didn't grow up in a francophone setting. Uh, mm-hmm. Growing, I grew up in uh, a, here in New York uh, in, in the Lenape Hoking. Um, but th- those are things that I've, I've experienced uh, as well over the years. Okay, so the next question is about, uh, is, is about language policing in diaspora. And that can look like mm-hmm. so many different things to like, um, you know, your, your, your English is... Uh, is laced with Creolese and Caribbeanisms to uh, to uh, actual legislate or, or being teased about that or teasing your own parents and you growing up speaking North American Canadian English. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm not saying you specifically, but I mean just generally. But then yes. also the idea of like legislation, uh, like in in, in in Quebec's Loi 101 and the idea of you know this uh, the the um, Quebec being a, a francophone province and needing to control that and control the languages available in in uh, in um, oh my gosh comment que on parle de entreprises en anglais businesses Mm-hmm. in between businesses and uh, and um, signage and uh, documents available and uh, now um, the the uh, for the city of Montreal Jajage and Jahaga Nation there's the mayoral election now and um, what's her name Valérie Valérie what's Valérie Plante um, saying that you know uh, Montreal is a is a is a purely uh, French-speaking city, and sort of mm-hmm. rejecting or denying the idea of embracing Montreal being the, the bilingual city in sort of I guess a legislative or governmental capacity, uh, when in reality that that is the re- that, that is the reality of Montreal. It's a it's a bilingual city. Mm-hmm. Um, but how has language policing in its many different forms from little things in everyday life to legislation or political conversations or political movement how does that shape your experience growing up in diaspora 
as a child of indenture? Wow, this this is such a, a loaded question, but like, saludalo. Like, I I don't even know where to begin with this. There's there's so much. I just, I, it's sometimes you just, you just get so frozen or you just, the amount of anger I have towards, I don't understand how this has been, but the thing is, I'm also not shocked at the same time because I, this has been going on since I was a kid and before I was a kid, since my, since my father and mother were, were in Quebec, these uh, continuous conversations over language and the way that language is policed have been ongoing. And I think it's so important to talk about language policing because beyond the French context, beyond the context of Quebec, this happens within our communities in so many different ways. So I think this is such a good question. And that was a good example of systemic language policing. And I did experience that as someone who was forced to speak French in Quebec. Um, but also when we look at language policing, we can also look at it as being this experience in school growing up where certain words, uh, when I said, for example, as having a more of a Trini and Guyanese accent. So as a child with my parents being the ones who taught me English and hearing my parents speak in English with a Caribbean accent growing up, I would tend to have a Caribbean accent when speaking certain words more. So before I started the colonized Eurocentric curriculum of pre-K, kindergarten elementary school etc that colonized um me where my where, where, where whiteness and the representation of whiteness as the status quo was seen as the way whiteness is equated to being canadian which includes how english is spoken and taught in canada and in the classroom in this very um anti-indigenous racist colonial way of thinking this is the setup this is where I have a memory where I was in school and children were making fun of the way I would pronounce words with more of a Caribbean accent and the way that I learned them from my parents, such as saying calendar instead of uh, calendar instead of calendar or tree instead of three. Like I even have to like think about it um, or being told by a teacher that I can only speak in class when I learned to speak properly in high school. So. At the same time, I acknowledge my power privilege and I do experience from being born in Canada and I, and I do have an accent where I have close proximity to whiteness. And within that same space, my way of pronouncing things as a child has been colonized to make me fit into the colonial mold, mold of how a white quote unquote Canadian accent should be. So that this is a form of language policing. This is um, a form of language policing that I experience when also uh, not only in the context of school, but also when I'm interacting with mainland South Asians and mainland Indians in the way that I pronounce Hindi or Urdu words, where I'm seen as bastardizing the language as an indentured diasporic or Indo-Caribbean person. So that's another form of language policing. The language policing that happens to me as a Guyanese in Trini spaces or as a Trini in Guyanese spaces, where if I mix up the translation, right? Ex oh my God. I cannot tell you how much that this just infuriates me. Why do we have to have so much things about curry, chicken, chicken curry? Honestly, it's at, at the point where I'm so scared to say which one first in case people would draw and conclusions. Also, this, I don't really know. this also has to be an episode by itself. Curry, chicken, versus chicken, curry. My girlfriend say curry, chicken, chicken, curry. 
honestly, and then you, you're saying Kaskurua Hassan, you're like, oh gosh, she's like Guinness and I don't know, like, I don't know. No, Gaffin, oh yeah, but he's like, it's it's too much. Like, <laughs> <laughs> if you say a specific word, that means I'm only digging up one side, like, no. I am everything at the same time. But it's so real, the language policing and this idea of superiority complex. And I see this in both spaces. I would see with full certainty Guyanese people would make fun of the way that Trini people would talk and the accent that they would have in the same direction, in the same breath. Trini people would sit down and talk about how Guyanese people pronounce things a specific kind of way. And I'm just... I'm just there stunned, like, how do you all not see how alive colonialism is right now with this divide and conquer, with all of this ways that these are different ways that they're, they're creating these ideas of how one is more superior than another, when we all need to look at how we need to stand in solidarity, how we were all colonized. It's just, there's a lot of decolonizing we need to do. That's one thing I do have to say. And like, even when we look at language policing as being someone born in Canada, when I'm pronouncing Caribbean, Trini, Guyanese, Hindi, Urdu terms um, due to being born here, the assumption is that I don't know sometimes Caribbean or Trini or Guyanese dialects because I'm born in Canada. A lot of people have that assumption or the assumption that I do not know any Hindi or Urdu because I'm an indentured diasporic or Indo-Caribbean person or that I won't be familiar with Tamil or Bangla music because I'm an indentured diasporic or Indo-Caribbean person or that I experience or the ways I experience language policing from other indentured diasporas that have maintained a higher degree of Indian language retention like those who are from Suriname, Fiji, Mauritius, South Africa, etc. who look down on the fact that I'm a Trini and Guyanese person and I have a lower degree of Indian language retention. And that's another form of language policing that is really alive that we don't speak about across the indentured diasporas that's really important to have as a conversation because, for example, when I went to a conference both in, in Fiji and Suriname where there are published researchers there from India and all, as across the indentured diasporas, I would hear how they would come up and tell people, they would tell me and say oh, like very loudly how Trinidadian and Guyanese people are just lazy. And that is why they don't speak any South Asian Indian languages. And they completely disregard the way our indentured ancestors have resisted in harsh conditions during indentureship and in the context of British colonization. Dutch colonization where Suriname is spoken in Suriname is a different context. We need to look at how our culture and religion including language was suppressed and how we still use terms from South Asia Indian languages that have evolved to become uniquely Indo-Caribbean and the pronunciation they turn their face up at in disgust is a source of strength, it's a source of resistance and this oral history of my ancestors passed down to me and we need to look at these lower, um, with lower South Asian Indian and many indentured diasporas from Suriname, Fiji, Mauritius, South Africa, etc. When they look down at Indo-Caribbeans, these are the types of microaggressions that I face and I'm sure that others have probably faced as well. And we need to talk about this. We need to talk about how our indentured diasporic and Indo-Caribbean names are viewed as being bastardized versions of the names used in South Asia, for example. And in, for example, the Muslim Indo-Caribbean community, we could look at how Ali, like A-L-L-Y, is used instead of Ali, A-L-I, or how Rahman, R-A-H-A-M-A-N, is used instead of Rahman, or how Baksh is used instead of Baksh, B-A-K-H-S-H, or how Hossein is H-O-S-E-I-N, or H-O-S-S-E-I-N, that is used instead of Hussein with H-U-S-S-A-I-N, or how Abdul, A-B-D-O-O-L, is used instead of Abdul, A-B-D-U-L. So, 
we need to also look at how language policing occurs in the way that names are even said and who gets to be saying who has a bastardized name and who doesn't and how power privilege functions in these contexts especially by mainland south asians who view this as being a bastardized version a mispronunciation this is not that what is your favorite thing about your cultural identity and what do you think is the most unique and i guess identities uh, and that's uh, i want to specify there and you know there are so many identities that that overlap whether that be ethnicity culture religion etc and uh, that that can manifest in different ways for different people and identity is not a monolith and i hope uh, our, our listeners remember that but anyway sorry so okay this is going to be i guess short and sweet but when i think about the favorite part of my cultural identity or what i think is very unique is the fact that it's so intricate it's so nuanced and it's so complex and functioning with a wide range of like lived experience it's so messy um and there's just a lifetime process of learning and learning harm trying to heal decolonize but there's so much rich history and resistance in the history of my people and in my blood that this complexity this nuance this messiness there's there's so much to unpack there and that that's what i cherish as being unique that's something that's the my favorite part of the cultural identity because it's not going to be the same for any for everyone everyone's going to experience it so differently and that is something that is amazing to me that we could be talking from places of understanding similarity uh and shared ancestry and shared heritage but then we could have so much differences in the way that we also experience and relate to terms and that's something that's important to for us to be able to have these conversations and be able to unpack this further um and this is also why i'm so excited about trying to get this documentary and a new book out um where i'm doing a call for submissions on where we could impact and this is specifically for the project of of the identity of muslim indo-caribbean but this works for any identity there's so much complexity and that's just something that's important to talk about thank you is there something that you wish um I guess two categories of, of, or two levels of this question is there something that you wish others knew about your identity first starting with is there something that you wish white folks knew about your identity while living in diaspora and is there or the identities you hold and is there something that you wish um wish uh, that other racialized people knew about your identity I remember seeing this question. I was just like this is such an intense question. I don't even know how to answer this. Like it's a good one though. It's good. I guess like the the main thing for me was just understanding how complex and nuanced identity is. That first and foremost is something that is important and to also acknowledge how power privilege play a role in understanding who could claim these different identities. And I I unpacked that a little bit when looking at how Indo-Caribbeanness Indianness and indentured diasporaness is usually associated with um being Hindu and that being synonymous and that how that leaves um Muslim identities marginalized and how it's important to look at how when we think of the term Indian South Asian how Indo-Caribbeans indentured diasporic people get margin- marginalized so it's just impacting the different ways that there's even nuances within the indentured diaspora within um the Indo-Caribbean context as well because whose voices do we pr- predominantly have amplified in Indo-Caribbean spaces mainly Trini Guyanese and Surinamese so it's also important to unpack and 
be as nuanced as possible when we're looking at these identities and also tying it back to when we're unpacking identities there is so much diversity when we look at neurodiversity when we look at disabled identity yes, when we yes. look at LGBTQ plus identities when we look at the different ways that we identify from language culture religion um and even the subcategories with it there's so many subcategories and we need to acknowledge all of this the different romantic identities there's sexual identities, trans identities, uh, gender fluid identities. There's so many different ways that you could identify within these cultural identities, but also attaching all these different parts of your lived experiences. Because when we look at identity, it's not just cultural background. There's so many other aspects of that. And in order to get that full view of well, what does this identity mean? You need to have as much backgrounds and as much lived experiences talking about it as possible. And you'll never have a full capture of what that identity is. But that's the thing that's most important. I, I'm not even directing this at, at white folks. I'm directing this at all my other BIPOC people. Um, because I, I've had so many conversations um, and it's just, it gets very exhausting <laughs> having to almost perform your culture for white white audiences and it's that you have to make it palatable for, for for the white audience as well not that this doesn't happen within south asian spaces and indian and indo-caribbean and indentured diaspora at the same time whatever is the majority or whatever is considered the more amplified voice or the more um authentic quote-unquote voice in that space you're always performing to that you're always understanding that if you don't represent that, then you're not going to be palatable to that community. And it gets very frustrating to have to do that, to have to do all this code switching and micromanaging. So the biggest thing that I want to get across is just there's so much diversity in these identities and no one's identity should be palatable, dimmed down in any way, shape or form. You are valid. Your multiple identities are valid. And you just being here is an act of resistance, honestly. And and there's so much strength in you. So that's what needs to be told. How this complexity is loved. You are loved. These are the, the, the conversations we need to have. We need to heal. We need to be able to show care towards so many different identities in our community. Because each identity is so special and so unique. And that's something that I don't think we get have conversations about and hear or talk about it's it's just it's never from that place of care and love um so I, I think that's the thing that's most important for me thank you so much it was such an honor listening to you tonight and you spoke with so much passion but you also spoke so thoughtfully and with so much deep and powerful re reflection and i hope that our our listeners can reflect on these experiences maybe have something that resonates with them but also have something have uh something that they learn and take away from this that uh leaves them reflecting more as well thank you so much Krima. I, I'm, my heart is just so filled with warmth knowing that you invited me here into the space and we're able to have these conversations. Oh. It's always a pleasure talking with you. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's it's really it's a mutual pleasure. It really is. <laughs> Thank you.